Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. Well, good morning, everyone. If you're here looking for Pastor Greg, I beg you and plead with you to come back next week. Uh, good morning to everyone online, too. Uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Philemon this morning. If you're uh, having to grab one of the blue Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, guess what? It's on page 1,000. It's really easy to find. Uh, if you have your own Bible, it's it's really uh, far at the back, right before the big book uh, of Hebrews. Before we dive into the message and the passage this morning, let's prepare ourselves by reading these verses from the screen together. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. And is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We pray that you would help us to find, eat, and delight in your word today. That you would set aside uh, the things outside of this place and and help us to focus on you. We pray that you would come like a fire and hammer and burn away and break away uh, the stubbornness and the things that keep us from hearing from you and following after you. And we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, anytime you start uh, a new book of the Bible, there's some background um, to cover. Typically make allowance for that at the beginning of the, uh, the first sermon. You get an introduction to the book, you get the author, uh, you get the setting, and the overall context, sort of human and world history, if you will. But there's also, um, we need to find its place in the storyline of God's redemptive plan uh, in history. And so, uh, here we are, we find ourselves in the book of Philemon, it's a short book, but you know, this, I found out this week that um, you can turn a sermon on the Philemon into at least three sermons. And so, uh, because of the central topic in this letter, we need a very uh, brief background and introduction into the history and types of slavery mentioned in the Bible. So this isn't going to be a Ph.D. dissertation. It's not going to be a college-level or a high school-level course on, on history or types of slavery in the Bible. It's not even going to be um, an essay or uh, what would be considered a decent speech in the backwaters of some hotel lobby somewhere on, in some conference. It is going to be a brief but necessary intro to the forms and history of slavery in the Bible as it pertains to this letter from Paul to Philemon. And to simplify things, there are really two primary forms of what we might be, uh, call slavery in the Bible. One is uh, slaves and people as property, and the second one is indentured servants. It has nothing to do with dentistry. So to be plain, in the first case, uh, nowhere in the Bible can you find any, listen, any 
support or advocacy for people owned and sold as property. Nothing like what we've seen in a wicked stain of our past here in the United States, okay? Now, you'll find that form of slavery reported on in the Bible, and you'll find that form of slavery acknowledged among other nations in in the Bible. In fact, Israel was enslaved for hundreds of years, multiple times. Um, Certainly, Egypt comes to mind there, right? And they were later reminded about their enslavement um, by God and reminders about how to treat others and how not to treat others. But you'll not find biblical support for one people to enslave another as property. In fact, it really, it truly goes against um, the very premise of humanity as put forth by God in His Word. That we are all made in the image of God and that there is godly dignity imparted to every human being. And that there is only one race, one race, human race, we were created with one blood, made from one man, descended from one historical man and one historical woman. And it is this one race that Jesus' own blood covers and saves, regardless of nationality, color, language, and so on. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that, listen, we're not even our own. We're not even our own. We belong, body and soul, life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. God the Father created us through Jesus, and so He alone rightfully owns us. And then Jesus bought our redemption by His own blood, and so now, really, we're doubly owned. So we're not even our own. We cannot make allowance whatsoever for any person owning um, another in any sense. That concept and any wicked interpretation of that at any time, in any point in history, um, of God's Word is a construct of fallen people, okay? However, we do see what we call indentured servanthood throughout the Bible. In fact, God makes allowance for this form of servanthood, and it was actually meant to protect people from poverty. Okay, A person could pledge himself to his debtor to work off debt that he owes. And, you know, God's law made allowance for this um, situation that at the very latest, by the seventh year, anyone in a bond-servant relationship like that in, to a debtor was set free, completely free. You had six years to serve, but the seventh year you're free. And so this arrangement made it, made it so that people could actually have a place to live have food to eat and pay off their debts out of poverty and with dignity as humans. Now we might find situations where these types of servants appear to be bought and sold, but in reality it's their contracts and their their labor service that might be traded. The servant himself was never ever property of another person to be sold and traded. And it's this situation that we find ourselves in the letter from Paul to Philemon this morning. Onesimus, who we'll meet later, was not property that Philemon owned. Instead, he was most likely an indentured servant working off a large debt. Okay, I told you, very brief. And I know that was quick, but we need to jump into the letter now. Let's start reading here from verses uh, 1 through 7. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Well, the first thing we see here in Paul's encouraging greeting to Philemon and opening his letter, we find out that Paul's in prison. So really, most people believe that um, his three letters to Philemon, uh, Ephesians, and Colossians were all written at about the same time, while he was imprisoned in Rome, probably um, around 62 AD or thereabouts. And all three of these letters were then actually hand-delivered by Tychicus and Onesimus. And at the time of uh, this writing, Paul's been in prison in Rome for some period of time and would be martyred there within the next two to five years. In terms of introductions to people, Apphia may be Philemon's wife. And Archippus may have been Philemon's son. But we do know from the ending of the letter of Colossians from Paul that Archippus may also have been a minister in one of the area churches. And so Philemon, um, having an indentured servant, um, probably was a wealthy man. And at some point he had become a Christian indirectly through Paul's ministry in the region. He did not Um, get converted to Christianity by Paul directly, but really through Epaphras, who we read about in other letters um, in the area of of Ephesus, he went and we believe that he is the one that led uh, Philemon to Christ. And so, changed by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, Philemon began hosting in his own home a fellowship of believers and other people exploring the good news of Jesus. So admittedly, too, that that's a whirlwind of introductions to people. We need to go ahead into the content of this encouraging greeting from Paul. But I don't know about you, but every time I read a letter from Paul where he starts off saying things like, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, I can become pretty discouraged right away. Because first of all, Paul always seems to be praying. When does he have time to write? And even... In his prayers, he's always seemed to be, seems to be remembering people and being thoughtful um, of others. But I don't pray nearly often enough, and I don't think of others nearly often enough. And it's at this point in my Bible reading, before I've even gotten started, that I'm distracted by how much I fall short and I'm fixated on my own pathetic brooding so that I'm no longer paying any attention to the God-breathed words on the page in front of me. I can go in with the attitude of Tigger, and in three sentences, I'm Eeyore. I'm guessing that means you know exactly what I'm talking about. But by focusing on our shortcomings before we even get started in the Word, it's a distraction from the living and life-giving Word of God. You know, the Holy Spirit wants to transform us by this Word, but immediately in our flesh and antagonized by our enemy, we can become defeated and farther from the place we want to be before we've even started. So what I try to remember and what I encourage you to do is when you find yourself reading the Word and becoming distracted and discouraged like that, say no. I mean, literally, you can talk out loud. No. Stop. I am a child of God. 
I'm not perfect yet, but He's making me more like Him. And then pray, Spirit, please lead me while I read. And Jesus, please rebuke the enemy from my life. And then move on. Move on with the simple faith that He will answer faithfully answer that simple prayer. Because while we're discouraged and distracted in just a few sentences, it's so easy, Paul is really building up a wave of encouragement in this greeting from 2,000 years ago. And the Holy Spirit is trying to build that wave of encouragement in us today, right now, living. Can you imagine if Philemon, he's unrolling the the paper, I assume, and, and he's reading these first couple sentences like we would be, and can you imagine him getting distracted and not reading the rest of that? The rest of, this, of these few sentences, he would become so discouraged and distracted. That would be a, a, a total loss. So we need to fight that distraction and we need to press on. So Paul directly here in this encouragement um, reaches out and he encourages Philemon's love and the faith that he has toward Jesus and to Jesus' saints. And he reveals, Paul reveals that he has personally derived joy and comfort from Philemon's love, particularly because Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints. This is so powerful. You know, if you put yourself in Philemon's shoes, maybe Philemon was in a period of discouragement. You know, maybe he began doubting his effectiveness in ministry. Maybe he began doubting his faith. Maybe he got tired of hosting people in his house. Maybe he was even being lightly persecuted in the area for being um, a baby Christian or you know someone a follower of the way. Maybe he was just tired, but it could be also be that he was on fire. Maybe he was ready to take new ground for on mission for Christ. We don't really know, but here's the thing: we do know. We do know the answer to this. Would you welcome this kind of an encourage, encouraging message from Paul? If you could receive that yourself, or could, would you welcome an encouraging message like this from your own spiritual mentor, whether they're still alive or not? Of course, of course, we would welcome that. Encouragement is spiritual fuel for the Christian heart. Encouragement is spiritual fuel for the Christian heart. Some people need less. Some people need more. I, I, I'm compelled to encourage Shane all the time, but he just doesn't seem to need it. You know, he just moves on. I can't imagine the rest of you have had the same experience, or maybe you have, but, you know, he doesn't seem to need it, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. You know, I do. Well, um, and here are just two passages, really, from the Word that challenge us. In Paul's letter, the first letter of the Thessalonians, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And the author of Hebrews writes, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are countless other um, examples where we're exhorted really to encourage um, one another because it's so easy to be discouraged. But here, sandwiched between the meat of encouragement in verses 5 and 7, Sorry, the, the, the sandwich of, of encouragement 5. So there's a meat here in verse 6. And it's a prayer that he prays over Philemon. That as Philemon shares his faith, that he would become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This one verse prayer is a pastoral and intercessory prayer over Philemon's life and over his ministry. It is a blessing, and it's an extension 
on Philemon's commission as a mission, uh, uh, an ambassador and a minister for Christ. In that little prayer, there is a great spiritual internal work being done. And it's, as it's being done in and around the area of Colossa and Laodicea, Hierapolis, and that area um, around Ephesus too. And some of that work is being done right there in Philemon's own living room. And here Paul is praying over all of that, but especially over Philemon personally. This is a rich gift. So we would know and do well to learn a bit about receiving that kind of encouragement, but also selflessly delivering it and regularly delivering it to each other. You know, in a world of great electronic connectedness, we still need personal touch. Let me give you just a moment to think of who models that here in this church. Who is it who personally and regularly crafts handwritten letters and cards and sends to folks? Some people get them, I think, weekly, the way I heard it. I, I get them all the time. I wonder who that might be in Gary. Miss Jane Rubel models that, and really, um, Miss Amy Fox as well. And I don't know about y'all. No, I do, actually. When, when I receive, when we receive those encouraging and thoughtful notes, they fill our hearts. They do. And though we don't say it nearly enough, we're thankful for your ministry, aren't we? It's an encouragement. It's a, it's a, it's a servanthood, a form of pouring out for others. You know, we're thankful for you because we have derived much joy and comfort from your love, our sister, because our hearts, hearts of the saints, have been refreshed through you. Thank you. Well, before we move on through the letter, here are some questions and potential action items for us here today. Would people accuse you of being encouraging? Don't answer out loud. Or are you stingy? with your encouragement? And if so, why? And what saints' hearts need refreshed this week, maybe even today, that maybe only you can do the refreshing? Who can you reach out to? Paul's pouring it on here. I think we can, we can follow his lead. Well, as we move through the letter, we see in the next few verses that Paul is providing a gracious appeal. Verses 11 through, uh, sorry, 8 through 11. Paul says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. Anyone with a, a study Bible on your laps are going to see an easy note here. Onesimus' name actually means useful. So this final verse here, this parenthetical statement, um, is really kind of a play on words. Um, but again, just as a reminder, Onesimus was working off a debt to pay Philemon. But for some reason, we can't be sure why, Onesimus ran away from Philemon and either deliberately, which seems most likely, or by some significant coincidence, that's a term I use for things like you know, creation, 
um, stuff like that, by some significant coincidence, he seemed to have arrived in Rome uh, and, and came to find Paul in prison. Now remember too that Philemon is not um, I'm sorry, Onesimus is not Philemon's property, but Onesimus did owe him significant debt, and more time was left on his employment or his work contract. And so by running away, Onesimus was stealing from Philemon and breaking the law, really. And on top of that, it seems unlikely that a bondservant would have enough spending money lying around to cover the expenses that it would take to get to Rome, which means it's probably... It's likely that Onesimus had stolen from Philemon in order to cover his travel expenses. So Onesimus had broken the law and added to the debt that he'd already owed. Not really heading in the right direction in multiple senses of the phrase, really, right? You know, but here's the thing. Onesimus got to Rome. Whether he was heading there intentionally or not, I don't know. But when he got to Rome... He was not free. He probably thought, he probably felt he was freer or more free. But he had only run away from his problems. With every additional mile that he got away from Philemon, I imagine his sense of freedom increased. But in reality, he was just enslaving himself further. He's going deeper in debt, both to Philemon and to God. So while he may have felt freer than he'd ever felt in his life, he wasn't truly free. Not until he met Christ. I don't know about y'all, but that started sounding pretty familiar to me. In a personal way, in my own life, and I can, I can count too many people that that would describe them even right now. Do you know anyone running in a direction they think is freedom? But all they're doing is entangling themselves and driving themselves deeper into enslavement of some kind. We do this. as This is what we do. It's what we do. We find something that feels like freedom and then we give ourselves over to it and it enslaves us. There are so many ways and so many things that are ready, really, to imprison us. We can so easily become slaves to our own desires. I, I was. Um, this happens most of the time, but this week it happened a lot. I'm just listening to normal music that I wouldn't listen to. Some of it's, you know, 30 years old or whatever. And how many times phrases will come in, and like that's in the message this week. You know, we're slaves to your, you're slaves to your desire and you'll try anything until you're on the floor looking out there. So it's like you, you have this growing appetite. We can easily become a slave and prisoner to insecurities or anxieties or depression. And let those drive us in a direction that we shouldn't go. You know, we can find ourselves being enslaved to a title or past performance and others' current expectations of us. We can be slaves to fear or work. We can be slaves to ministry. And of course we can be slaves to addictions, which, which can take too many forms. And these things which we may run to at first for freedom too often become a prison. 
And it's because of those things in themselves can never truly free us. Paul says in his letter to Galatians, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. And Peter wrote in his letter, 1 Peter, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So what or who can truly free us? Well, what did Onesimus experience by this time? Well, apparently he had a life-changing event after meeting Paul in Rome. He met Paul, and after some period of time, he became a true Christian. And in the very moment that he put his faith and trust in Christ Jesus, his vertical and spiritual debt to God was paid for and eliminated. Though he still had human debt to Philemon, that hadn't been wiped out. Spiritually, Onesimus was truly free. Listen to what Jesus said in John 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So while on the run, seeking to steal away from his own freedom, Onesimus was chased down. Chased down by God. And now that Onesimus had a genuine faith in Jesus, he was a new man. He was a spiritually free man, and he had become a brother in Christ to all who would call themselves Christian, even Philemon. <coughs> the fact, and this fact surely brought Philemon to a powerful crossroads as he read Paul's letter to him. Earlier in the letter, Paul is so expressive about the joy he gets by the way Philemon works for the Lord and how he treats other believers. He strongly encouraged Philemon's love and ministry to other saints. And now he's saying to Philemon, Onesimus is one of us. That's fun to say, by the way. Can you say it? Onesimus is one of us. Onesimus is a saint, Paul is saying. And I remember how you treated all those people. I poured the love on. Now, Paul wasn't just setting him up, but it still served pretty, pretty good uh, tool to bring this home. You know, it's really like if I were to stand up here and tell y'all, you know what? You guys are phenomenal Colts fans. Listen, you guys wear Colts blue loud and proud. You do it not just on Sundays, not just on, you know, Colts Fridays during the NFL season. You do it all week long. Yeah, your man cave, whatever that is, is, is decked out with, you know, Colts memorabilia. You've got signed copies of this and that and jerseys and football cards. Do people still collect football cards? And I'm just pouring it on, pouring it on, pouring it on. And oh, by the way, Tom Brady's a Colt. Did you read the news? Tom Brady's a Colt. How would that feel? It would take more than a moment for you to get over the fact that this is Tom Brady. Right? 
as much as I pour the love on for being a Colts fan, like, and he's one of them. <laughs> so surely Philemon was overjoyed by Onesimus becoming a believer, but there's no doubt that Onesimus had wronged Philemon. And in Philemon's eyes, he was wrong. In society's eyes, he was wrong. In God's eyes, Philemon was wronged. And Onesimus still truly owes Philemon. That debt has not been wiped out. So you can imagine how conflicted Philemon must have been in reading these words from Paul. What is he going to say to Paul? How is he going to respond to This is Paul. That kind of conflict doesn't go away on its own. You can't just will that stuff away. You don't just get over Tom Brady becoming a cult. That kind of reconciliation needs the power of the Holy Spirit. And it needs a transformed life. You need a new heart to accept Onesimus back if you're Philemon. But you know what? We've only cracked open the box. We've only just cracked it open of Paul's gracious appeal. Before we fling the box open, we have a few more questions to think about. Some of these are direct. What are you running from? What are you running to that isn't Jesus? How is that whole seizing your own freedom thing working out? Where have you drawn the line in terms of someone who's become a Christian that you never thought would? Hmm. High school friends. Man, I never ever want to believe they would be a Christian. How do you respond to them? How do you behave? Now for me, it's easy. It's 360 miles away. But how do you do that when they live nearby? Is there anyone who's returned to reconcile to you that you've kept from forgiving even though Christ has forgiven them? Who should you turn to and initiate reconciliation? Who should you accept, this one's difficult, who should you accept as a brother or sister instead of someone who can serve you or do something for you? Who ought to be treated as an equal brother or sister in Christ? Because Paul's gracious appeal here is just an introduction. He's going to go far beyond this and he's going to rock Philemon's world and he rocks our world today. Let's finish the letter. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, hmm, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Someone might have been note-taken for Paul, but he grabbed the stylus or whatever it was he used. He's, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Here's a phrase we just heard earlier on in the introduction. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, this is interesting, I'm going to come and personally verify. 
Prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, you are praying for me, aren't you, Philemon? (laughs) That I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you. Epaphras was the one that led Philemon to the Lord, most likely. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In wrapping up the letter, Paul really drops a bomb on Philemon by offering a great exchange. Now Paul strongly suggests, and it is very strong, that Philemon free Onesimus and take him back, not as a bondservant, but as a brother in Christ. And Paul makes his great exchange offer in a loving way, and he ultimately leaves the decision up to Philemon. But he pled his case in the strongest terms possible while remaining diplomatic and while leaving the choice to Philemon. And this is important. This is important for Philemon's relationship to God and Philemon's relationship with Onesimus. Because if Philemon merely outwardly obeyed a command from Paul, it wouldn't have been the same, right? Philemon might then resent Onesimus and vice versa. And relationally, things between Philemon and Onesimus would, would be very difficult. However, if Philemon willingly agrees and reckons Onesimus' debt as paid, if he welcomes him in as an equal and a fellow believer, then that's a treasure. That's a treasure for the rest of their lives. Much more kingdom work can be done through the two of them working together. And it's true that, that we can all learn something about Paul, what Paul's modeling here. And how many times might we be in the position to make demands and commands rather than Uh, letting someone else make the decision and and own something. Take it on for themselves. Let them own the good and the bad. But we also need to remember that Onesimus agreed to return without knowing whether Philemon was going to accept Paul's great exchange offer or not. Onesimus is hand-carrying the letter back. He agrees in Rome to take it back to Philemon, not knowing, he didn't get to text Philemon and say, hey bro, we good or... That didn't happen. He's showing up. And so, in a sense, Onesimus has put himself at the mercy of Philemon. That's the way it looks on the outside. But in reality, Onesimus had put himself at mercy uh, of Christ. He put himself in the hands of a loving and sovereign God. We could stand to learn a bit about that, about him as well. When, How often are we entrusting our lives to a God who loves us and is powerful enough to keep us. Now, in verse 19, Philemon, Paul says that Philemon owes him. There's a play here, because we know that Onesimus was indebted to Philemon, and Onesimus became the bondservant to work off that debt. And debt required service, and not just in some unofficial way, like I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And not for the young kids. I don't. I just don't think they're going to get that one. Uh, and it's not just like you know what. Uh, thanks for covering my lunch. I'll, I'll get you next time. It's not. It's got to be more official than that because we're talking about a real debt. It's a significant debt, and it required a pledged service, kind of like a guaranteed contract of work. But since Philemon came to faith in Christ, into true freedom for his life and soul, indirectly through Paul's ministry. Paul makes a claim that Philemon owes him his very self. So Paul is in effect saying, Hey Philemon, you should be my indentured servant. 
You owe me your very self. Now, he's saying, I could keep Onesimus as a payment on that debt, but I won't. I send him back to you and make no claim on his service. I cash in that debt you owe me and transfer what you owe me for what Onesimus owes you. Paul says, this transaction cancels all debts between the three of us. Now we may live as brothers. That's a great exchange. You know, how many of y'all, don't raise your hand, have uh, rewards points for your, your credit cards or you know travel, traveling cards or whatever? Can you imagine cashing all those? We, we usually use those for our own selfish benefit. I know I, I do. Selfish benefit. But Paul is cashing in his reward points here for a kingdom and eternal benefit. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? This is so powerful at a human relationship standpoint. It would be a great story to kind of blow out or a movie to just on the surface without even having the sort of the Christian background here. Just to see that on the screen would be a powerful thing. But it's far more powerful than that. Because this move by Paul is modeling the redemptive plan that God has had in mind all along. Because God presents to us the great exchange. You see, you and I are born into this world deep in debt. And every day we breathe, we add to the debt. I'm not talking about the American deficit. That's a different item altogether. I'm talking about moral, legal, and spiritual debt and deficit from our sin. We are not actually born free in this world, even in this country. We are not born free. We are born into slavery. We are slaves to a sin nature that we inherit from our parents. And we are slaves to the sin that we actually commit ourselves by falling short of God's standard and His intent for us. And all the while, our sin debt just builds up. Not just on its own, but cast up against the righteousness and justice of a perfect and holy God. It's not just the number of times that we sin. Or the types of sin that we commit. It's that any sin committed against a perfect, holy, and just God are so immense that we can never ever pay that debt back ourselves. Why is that? I've heard that said before, but why is that true? Why do we accept that statement as true? Because the payment of sin debt is simple. It's not complex, but it's extremely costly. The payment of sin debt is not complex, but it's costly. It's blood. Only death can pay the penalty owed for sin debt to God. Now from the very beginning, it didn't take Adam and Eve very long at all to sin against God. We all know this story. From that very first sin, death, a death was required. A life was required in payment. God took the life of innocent animals to use the hide to cover Adam and Eve's sin, shame, and nakedness. And many years pass, and through Moses, God set up a set of life rules to live by, which we call the law, where God's people could regularly atone from their own sin by sacrificing other innocent animals. You see, God didn't change the rules. It's always been life for sin. The basic rule, blood for sin, remained, and it remained until Jesus Christ bought the one human race with the great exchange. Here's how the writer of Hebrews 
puts it, just a few pages beyond where you are. There, Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But these sacrifices, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. He had put on flesh. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, this is Jesus saying, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. You see, Jesus was Himself very God. But he was conceived by the Holy Spirit within Mary's womb, and so he was born as a baby. And conceived by the Spirit, Jesus was not born into that sin debt that you and I are. And as such, he was also capable of living a life free of sin. Now, I used to think when I was younger that Jesus didn't sin because he was God. Kind of like a free pass. Well, of course he didn't sin, he was God. That's not the way this works. Christ was tempted in every way that we all are. And yet, he was able to choose not to sin. And that is extremely important because his perfection at the end of his life and his death is extremely important because he needed perfect blood to cover the sins of all of us for all time. And all the way to his death, he lived a perfect life, daily making choices to not sin against God the Father. And it was his perfect life and death on that cross that paid the sin debt for all who believe on him and trust him to pay the debt that they owe, that we owe to set us free. That's the great exchange. So in taking up our immense sin debt upon himself, Jesus ransomed us. He paid for us and exchanged himself by his own life. And in doing that, he became the greatest servant that ever lived. We're looking at, at Onesimus as, as getting freed as a bondservant. We look at us as being freed from enslavement to our sin. Jesus became the greatest sermon, servant in ransoming our lives. Listen to these words in Matthew 20. Whoever, This is Jesus talking. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. You know, Jesus exchanged his life for ours. He offered his own life to God the Father, who we owe for our sin, and he became our ransom. That's that's really great news. Amen? He became our ransom. He is the perfect servant, and he's already paid the price to make that offer to us, that, that great exchange. In a similar way that Paul left it up to Philemon to decide to accept Paul's offer, Jesus waits for you to respond to his great exchange offer this morning. Listen, if you've been on the run seeking your own freedom, let him receive you and set you free. Because unlike Philemon, we didn't know how he would respond. We already know for certain how Jesus will receive you. And if you're here this morning and you're sensing something strong inside you, not just your mind considering these words, but your heart weighing heavy with a burden to respond to Jesus' loving offer, know this, that's, 
that not just you. That could be God's Holy Spirit saying, take up my offer, because that's how He works. He works in our hearts like that. And we need to respond to Him when He prompts us that way. I'd like to play a song to you. You can imagine it's from a runaway slave. It could be from a prodigal as well. He is faithful to turn and receive any who would turn to Him. You feel that pressure today, that that burden in your heart that you've been running from Him. It's like, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, a long time ago it's like God put an image of, of like a quarter in my mind. And we're on one side of that quarter and we feel like we are so far away from God and He's just on the other side of it. No matter how far we've run. Because His arm is long, as they say. You can, there's nowhere you can go to hide from Him. He is ready to hear from you and receive you. Our final questions for us to consider today. Again, what are, what are you a slave to? What is something that initially felt like freedom but is now a prison? Who or what are you running to thinking it's freedom? Who or what are you running from? You know, like the prodigal son in Luke 15, Onesimus ran only to find God and be sent back where he came from. And most importantly this morning, the question is, are you spiritually and eternally free? Have you been set free by Christ? Most important question you'll ever ask yourself, and we end with that this morning. You know, it's not common um, for us to do this, but this morning I want to invite you, if you're going to respond to those questions, if you want to come to Christ, you can come up here. And you can kneel here and, and, and some of us will pray with you. You're not coming to me. You're not coming to any object up on this stage. That act from getting up from your chair to coming down here isn't significant except for the fact that you're outwardly saying, God, I need you. The real work that is done by Christ happens by faith in the heart and the trust that we exert because He puts it there. That's where the real work is. But if you need to respond to Him, you can come up here this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know how good you are to us. We thank you so much that in this, this common letter that just so happened by some significant coincidence to have survived these 2,000 years that you're speaking to us even today. How faithful you have been to preserve your word. We sang about that this morning in the very first song, the 500-year-old song that we sang this morning about how you have preserved your word, though the devils and those have tried to wipe it out. Here in a very small letter we hear powerfully from you and we see the picture of your redemptive plan for humanity for all time. This great exchange. Jesus, you have been so faithful and good to have lived the life we couldn't live, to take the punishment on your own body physically that we were owed, and to pay the debt we could never pay. And you did it out of love. We are compelled to respond to that in some way this morning. Help us to respond to you appropriately with reverence and awe and the joy in our heart. We know that only you can move us to that. And we pray that you would do that this morning. We ask that you have your way with us. We're grateful for the power and the convicting Holy Spirit who doesn't condemn, but He nudges. 
And He opens our eyes and our hearts and our ears as Shane led us to pray earlier, opens it to the truth. And this truth will set us free. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, if, you, if you prayed that with me, or if you're going to come up um, this morning and pray, then know that when you come to Christ, you're truly free. Onesimus thought he was getting away um, on his own, but he, he didn't. Until he met Christ, he wasn't truly free.